Hey, welcome to Your Basket is Empty. My name's Tim Richardson, I'm your host. And this is a place where I sit down with interesting people doing interesting stuff in the e-commerce space. My guest for today is Alana Lever, one of the founders of Motley London, a pioneering new jewellery brand bringing coveted, collectible design by the world's best fine jewellery designers to everyone. Enjoy. Lana, welcome to the podcast. Tim, thanks for having me. No problem. Let's rewind. Let's go back to the start. Modern history at Oxford, uh, then Accenture, then a number of strategic roles. What were you thinking back then? So I graduated in the middle of the recession and didn't really, there weren't really graduate jobs or the same amount of kind of pressure to jump into something. And Accenture had this new initiative called boot camp where they'd take 30 of you away and you'd work on a strategic challenge and I went and I was like hey this is I, I'd always thought I was going to be a lawyer did a couple of vacation schemes thought it was really dull uh didn't do that and I, I I did this kind of business consulting weekend and the people were really smart and fun and they said would you like a job and would you like it in a year because it's the recession and I said yes. So I went off and did a really interesting gap year studying Arabic um, in uh, Israel and the West Bank. And then I started at Accenture. And I didn't realize Accenture was a massive technology company at the time. So I had to do a little bit of wangling to get into the strategy stuff. Um, but did really interesting work. I worked in oil and gas uh, product. Um, and then... And then moved into industry and um, started at Argos. They were doing a fascinating digital transformation program at the time. I was in their strategy and transformation team. Um, and then left to go to Innocent. Um, Argos was a ma- an amazing place, but it was in Milton Keynes. Um, and Innocent is a brilliant brand. I've been there before. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's not the best. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, really not a massive fan of Milton Keynes. <laughs> and um, sorry to anyone. Any who listeners lives there. out there. Yeah, it's very well organized for a town. Um, and uh, went to Innocent to um, be their market strategy manager for, their, for all the little juices. Amazing brand, amazing company, amazing values. Um, but I really missed the digital elements of my job at Argos. And so when this job came up at Itsu to head up kind of digital loyalty customer um it 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 was speaking to something that i kind of missed and and was big promotion so i've never felt that i had a particular plan kind of fell into consulting and then one thing followed after another we're going to get on to the current venture in a bit but you're not the first person i've met who's come from a management consulting background that is now in the world of e-com why is that what what do you think it is about that experience that puts you in a good position to go into that world I think actually a lot of management consultants feed founders and I think that they feed founders with a general interest and engagement in consumer challenges. Um, Thinking about the management consultant founders, I know some do work in uh, other sectors, but actually I do know a lot of e-com managers. I think the funny thing about most of us is we don't and I'm, I'm learning this every day, we don't know a huge amount about the day-to-day functionalities of an e-commerce business, you know, having always operated at a high level. But I think that consulting gives you the opportunities and the training to really structure your thinking and structure your problem solving and also be a generalist. Um, and I think that comes, comes in handy. 
That's interesting. There's an interesting book I saw recently that's about the art of generalism and it being a very um, uh, unique skill set. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of like focus on being a specialist or something, but being a, general, being a generalist is cool. Yeah. I th actually, the zeitgeist that I get is the generalist days are almost over and people are obsessed with niche specialists. And I think there's, there's a place for both. But, and I always dream that I could have the focus of a specialist, but I'm just interested by too many things. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. So let's talk about Motley then. And I, I'm keen to kind of explore, which we might do in a bit, about your sort of um, how you work with Cecily in the sense that of your backgrounds, but you met her at Oxford, but the, the, the adventure hasn't really gotten going till a couple of years ago. So talk us through like the journey there, like how you kind of met and then went away and came back together again. Yeah, so Cecily and I met in a tutorial about witchcraft, which I think is an origination story for many founders. Um, we were good friends. We weren't even in the same friendship group and have stayed in touch over the years. Um, but her career trajectory is really interesting and I think will help shed light on the business venture. So she went into the art world and she ended up being director of a very niche gallery where contemporary artists like Anish Kapoor and Jeff Koons would make limited editions of jewellery and sell it to art collectors for thousands of pounds. And when she was there, she noticed incredibly high contemporary engagement um, for this really great design-led jewellery. You know, this is not diamonds and stones. This is great design. Um, but none of her peers could obviously afford it because it was thousands of pounds and up. And she was also approached all the time by these incredibly talented jewellery designers that have a uniquely difficult time in accessing the market because, first of all, unfortunately, there is a not a stigma, but many people can call themselves a jewellery designer. We're talking about people that have gone to somewhere like Central St. Martins. They've graduated in jewellery, but unlike an artist, they don't have galleries they can go and exhibit in and handle their commercial work. The expectation is that they build their own brand. That takes capital. So what you find is most uh, jewellery design, like outstanding jewellery designers end up being fine jewellery designers uh, and do a lot of stuff on commission. And what that means is they have access to a very limited market and the world doesn't have access to their great design. So even if you're not interested in fashion, I could say name 10 fashion designers. But name a jewellery designer mm. and most people haven't heard of them. So she kind of was thinking about these two things and basically um, evolved this model where the design would be outsourced to the best jewellery designers. And I think something that's unusual about Motley is that we know that people have different aesthetic styles, tastes with jewellery. So what we do is we find the designers that are best in class at their thing. So whether that's androgynous punk or working with pearls or very classical um, kind of classical designs, um, we'll find them. So we, and, and again, Cecily in her career noticed this power of like collaboration to diversify and diversify the range. So she started plotting about that. I then got made redundant and it was really off the back. I think I did something um, depressingly middle class, like go on a yoga retreat to Ibiza. And um, we were texting. Classic. Classic, <laughs> all the classic. And I started out just helping her with her business plan um, by March, we discussed that I would come in full time. I was doing some freelance for some other startups. And then I came in full time in July. And I think it's interesting because I don't think I fit 
a traditional founder mold in that I've always wanted to run my own business. Um, but I did always know that if someone had a brilliant idea, I could help them turn that into reality really well. So when we started talking, and I really believe in this m mission of like good quality things not you know I, I i really resent this like fast fashion throwaway culture and we really used to treat jewelry with respect it's you know it's an art form it's a sculpture it's wearable it's a really hard thing to do and so i really kind of bought into the mission and i will go on to talk about it but we have very complementary skill sets and so there was a lot of uh um she had already been working on it full time uh, since september uh, 2017 October October 2017 which is when I started helping her with her business plan and then we decided to go in together in March so there's some evolution there interesting and so getting back to the point of like your experience versus hers do you think that that puts you you two in a unique position so say if you were to go into this with another management consultant do you think that there would be too much <laughs> conflict of so I think that there are there are pros and cons as with everything. I think with us we do have quite a clearly defined set of uh, roles and also interests, which is great. So the stuff she loves, like photo shoots, I find deeply boring, and the stuff I love, like processes, she finds deeply boring. Um, there is some overlap. So you know, with visual creative, um, there's always a tension between user experience and brand. But actually, I think that our complementary skill sets work. Um, really well I think that um, we've we have come from quite different professional backgrounds mine's been a lot more structured hers has been a lot more f informal and again um, we we spent a lot of time up front identifying and then uh, defining how we would work together so that, so that was, was done beforehand you we put so much work into it yeah. I think unlike a lot of so people always ask us about our relationship and yeah. kind of expecting to hear the dirty details. <laughs> and I think what we did really well early on is have very difficult, incredibly exhausting conversations about how we dealt with conflict and um, picking stuff up and our behaviors. Um, and I think it, it gets, it's got a lot e easier and our relationship is like continues to improve. So I think that's really helpful, but we put in we've put in a lot of time and systems and structures to make sure that our relationship works smoothly. That's really interesting, that's amazing. So um, I've noticed with the kind of output that you've got at the moment, there seems to be more maybe personality than I've seen with some contemporaries. Yeah. Is that like, yeah, was that particularly the way that you've got your navigation in terms of looking at occasions when I'm looking for some products, is that, obviously it's thought about but how far have you gone with those sorts of concepts so you don't want to be seen as a negative nancy but we exist because the jewelry industry is actually quite shit mm. there is a lot of badly made stuff out there like fashion jewelry it turns your ears green it won't last things are stuck together with glue and there's also quite uninspiring design and i think something that we both feel quite passionately about. It's not a very honest industry. There are really, really high markups. Um, people don't really understand what they're buying. So a great example, and I was like this, I see something that says 18 karat gold plate and I think, ooh, luxe. I would never think to ask what the base metal was. But the base metal is much, it, that's what the quality and that's what the cost is. And a lot of stuff you buy that might even be 24 karat is plated on brass. Um, so I think that we 
the other thing is our stuff is very different to what's out there and so our biggest fear it was that people would think well it's just another jewelry brand and so that fear has driven us to bring that level of personality into everything that we do but i think it's not just personality um one of our visions with motley is to make the shopping for jewelry as enjoyable as the wearing of it and one of the things that really like engaged me with this mission is looking at the digital online experience for buying jewelry and just being so overwhelmed and confused and wanting to bring that excitement and that fun and that emotion that you get when you wear something when you wear a piece of jewelry that you really care about into the shopping experience so whether that's our occasions or whether that's our little googly eyes that move around the page um we just wanted to bring a little bit of joy and and beauty actually and art into everything that we do i think you've executed it perfectly so yes. keep doing that. it's amazing um i want to touch on something that i've i've heard you talk about before in other podcasts uh, and when we had the dinner uh the tomorrow group dinner not so long ago you touched on it as well funding so what has been your experience um and maybe some yeah uh insights into how you've gone about it so we can edit this out um (laughs) depending on i don't know when this is going live but we have literally just closed around um but so we've signed everything just the money has not been transferred so you can keep that in or edit that out we are really excited so this is um the first round we raised via angels um very very difficult um i think that two things there are preconceptions about jewelry business and specifically two women starting a jewelry business which are often hard to overcome but then there's a basic thing that i think is hard for everyone which is if you've never done it before just knowing where to start you know i remember googling angels or and and i think that we can all do you know, younger startups favors by helping them out with pitches, introducing them to people. Um, I think it's a very, very difficult network to penetrate. Um, And so interesting that our second round, we've had some angel, our existing angels come back in again, but it's led now by two VCs. So um, that's really exciting. Um, They're two European funds and they specialize in marketplaces which is interesting we are a new model for them um, i think one of the other things we struggle with is people went well you're not a brand and you're not a marketplace and we thought well exactly we're trying to do something fundamentally different we are a, effectively a brand fueled by a marketplace of designers uh, with a vertically integrated supply chain it doesn't yeah it's it's was a new that, thing yeah so i'm keen to learn about that so because i i uh, totally appreciate what you talk about when you go into those meetings and you're leading it with the jewellery concept and you're talking to old white men and they're not getting it right did you have to inject those sorts of terms for them to understand it and do you think it, it would help your cause or I mean it's true right but does that so get I the think concept across easier or something I think two things uh, first of all they got to a stage in like social events where I'd be like yeah I'm the founder of a vertically integrated supply chain business um, because I was so frustrated with this kind of glazed look when you say jewellery so I think um, so, so that was that I think that oh, so our cu- both our current VCs have female partners on the teams mm-hmm. um, we also met them over an extended period of time and actually if I'm being honest the VCs that we met uh, were a lot more methodological. 
a lot of them, which we found quite a boring response, was they said jewellery is an overcrowded space. And we were like, we know it's all the same stuff and we're trying to do something different. There has been no disruption in this industry for years. Um, so that was quite a frustrating one. Um, but And also, I think that the UK venture scene is not that much of a fan on direct-to-consumer. We went to America and... You know, it's crazy over there, it's right? crazy yeah. over there yeah. and they totally get it and they totally believe in it. Whereas here, they're like, uh, one specific feedback I remember was they said, you know, you guys are great founders, it's a great idea, but I can invest in five businesses this year and you guys hold stock, so I'd rather invest in one that doesn't hold stock. And you're like, well, you know, what can I do with that? You're not, you're not thinking how big could this be. You're thinking how do I mitigate my risk? And I do feel that the UK venture scene is a lot more. Um, conservative and actually risk averse um, than the uh, than the European and the US scene. Do you think so? I think about this a lot, right? And you had Eve, which floated. They were kind of the I think equivalent of some of those really big direct consumer type concepts in the states, like Warby Parker and so forth. Do you think because there's a lack of those success stories here, there isn't the benchmark or the well trodden path, and so it's it's more difficult and we just need more of them. Yeah, so. I think it's a bit chicken and egg. I mean, we have two brilliant um, direct-to-consumer founders on our cap table. So uh, the founder of Bloom and & Wild and the founder oh, of Papier. So they are success stories, but they haven't sold yet, right? That final exit outcome hasn't happened as it has in the States. I also think there's more of a consumer mindset in America, so I think that is a bit chicken and egg. Um, but I think that... I think it also comes back to the fact that maybe there's not as much of an understanding of a brand and, like, what makes a really successful brand that actually goes, beyond, you know, B2B optimizing channels and, and fitting a niche market segment. But, like, what is in a truly great brand? I think maybe the UK VC scene isn't as as well equipped to kind of deal with. And we, I see so many funds that are like, in, fa in fact, in the, like, the women's sector, you know, you know we're opening up the, the doors, but we will be to be only. So there's, there's definitely, I think, a nuance towards that in the UK. So just for some insight, and I suppose it, you don't need to divulge too much, what does one spend the investment on? <laughs> like, what, what, what are the first steps? Because I imagine... Uh, awareness acquisition all this sort of stuff is, is that what it is is it hiring you know scaling up like is it all of those things so what was interesting is that i think we spent less of the first round on growth than we thought we would and more on getting our supply chain right so now it's and we've been running on such a lean team so now it's about getting the right people in place um scaling i think you know the days of just you can't scale on instagram like if we'd have launched three years ago it would have been a very different matter but you've got to be a lot more creative there's a lot more integration of physical and online retail now so we're doing a lot more um pop-ups and experiential stuff um so i think just generally there's a uh you have to be a, a lot more creative so um the usual people people um and 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 paid channels um and and but but a lot of that is actually quite still undefined as in it's very much around testing and learning for us mm, mm, mm. so you touch on an interesting point and i want to explore it because i read an article recently about the concept that 
particularly it was talking about direct consumer brands that we could say generally brands need to think more like media companies. Did that apply to somebody like Motley? I actually really disagree with that because I think that the most powerful, lasting brands can come out of nowhere. I think there is a bigger structural challenge, which is sometimes brands don't grow as quickly in their early years, or they grow too quickly and they don't focus on the really important things like getting the customer, getting the product right and getting the customer right. So I think it's an interesting point around uh, media. I guess the reason that I slightly recoiled from that is the perception of media companies now. And actually, I think... Now more than ever, brands need to, you can need to trust a brand. You need to trust what it puts out. You need to trust that what it says is what it does. Um, in a world where we're not quite sure what media to trust and what media not to trust. I think the volume of content you need to put out to understand, to help your customer understand the world you're operating is, is key. Um, but I think that you need to have the core is to have a really strong vision and purpose and to know how everything that you do feeds into that. So given that some of your new um, investors are, 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 have got experience in marketplaces, does that mean that the, the Motley model is potentially applied elsewhere in the future or is it you know is that even on the roadmap or or you know you've yeah. got enough on your plate right now so we are <laughs> I mean, not I'm thinking like art well yeah. so we are not a marketplace it's very important and i remember when we were doing our first fundraising round and they said why, why aren't you a jewelry marketplace we don't believe that that works because we first of all believe that um people want a more curated experience they want they don't want volume they want a choice, but not extensive choice. But the second thing is that to make a marketplace work financially as a business, you need such volume on your side that the ability to pick and choose, and we believe we find the best designers. Um, what we do is take the profit structure of a brand, the risk and the capital risk, and we take that away from our designers. The challenge with jewelry brands, um, and I won't name them here, but um, many of them come from a designer founder who has a very strong aesthetic. And the challenge with that as a business model is that once you own one, there's not really any need or reason to own a new one because they kind of all look and feel the same. Whereas with us, you've always got what we have, our model effectively does is harness creativity in a really unusual way. Um, so we've always got interesting, exciting products coming in. Um, other sectors, um, we're really interested effectively in these artisan sectors um, where you have these incredibly talented people that no one's ever heard of, so ceramics, textiles, um, but we are told not to get too ahead of ourselves and double down on our, our core vision. But we do see Motley as this way of, our vision is to make great design accessible to everyone. Right. So um, that, that can apply to a whole bunch of... So how do you go, because you touched on it before about... Um, I'm a, uh, a, 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 a newly fully-fledged designer and I need access to what you provide. What does the curation process look like? Have you got a big waiting list? Is it, is it you're going in, uh, you know, to small markets or finding you know, uh, people through 
underground punk gigs i don't know you know how do you find like the, the next designer that's going to be part of your sort of process so it's actually surprisingly mathematical um we we understand the different category segments in the market and we go out and f- like we work out who the designer that's going to be best to do this um our first designer was head of jewellery essential St. Martins. So networks also play a really strong part. It's a very network community and it's a very supportive network community, very collaborative. Um, and designers are really happy to recommend each other. Um, we do get kind of quite a lot of, of cold calls and people wanting to do it. But um, for us, it's, it's important that we um, always are launching things that add something new to our range so for example we've just launched we've just done our first young designer collaboration and it's the most amazing collection it's about um all around mental health so uh charlotte the designer has struggled with mental health from an early age and uses puts a creative output into jewelry but has created a range for us all around the modern day worry bead so you can play with it spin it fiddle it and it's all about managing your daily anxieties in a practical way that's amazing and we're donating that's so cool it's yeah, really yeah. amazing and we're donating 10 percent of our sales from that to sane which is an amazing mental health charity um, based in islington actually so we we also look for like up and coming raw talent um as well as these very well established designers um but we, yeah, it's it's quite a, it's a careful and a curated yeah, process, curated. Yeah, 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 and all uh, done by my co-founder Cecily. Wow. So um, we've talked a lot about uh, kind of the early period and, and what you're up to now. I want to get onto a bit more about you and what goes on in, in your life right now. Before we get onto it, um, when you mentioned Jeff Koons, it sparked a memory. I went and saw an exhibition of his in the Pompidou, mm. the most unbelievably pornographic exhibition i think i've ever seen so if anyone out there wants to go and see some pornographic (laughs) material look it up on youtube it's it's amazing or whatever google um so what does your typical day look like right now i just do not have one at all at all at all and uh, cecily said something really funny to me last night she said when this isn't stressful it is really fun isn't it and then she went but it's a bit of a catch-22 because it's always stressful. Um, it is... Com- I'd say my Mondays always look the same because we have our Monday morning meeting as a team and we have one-to-ones. Um, I think what's quite unusual about us is we're quite structured for an early-stage startup. Um, it's probably my management consulting. But also, um, I took a lot from Innocent that... Um, you can't just be a good person and expect company values to follow. You actually need to set up proper structures and processes to embed them, which feels anathema, especially early stage, but I think it works uh, really, really well. So uh, my Mondays always look the same. And then it, it really can change. I mean, it, we could be out and about uh, meeting people, um, brand partnerships. Um, I said I spent this morning... Um, with our designer, um, doing the product roadmap, doing some analysis. And then there's the the bit they don't tell you about is the really boring stuff that when you're in a bigger organization, you don't realize that a system or another person does. So finance, hate finance, hate uh, legal. Um, I don't mind HR. Um, again, we've got like systems processes, but stuff I'm less familiar with, um, that is that is uh there's always something very boring that you're trying to put off your task list to do um and permanently incredibly busy so no no standard day i can attest to the 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 legal i was looking at some contracts stuff today yeah yeah and i'm not a lawyer um (laughs) so uh given that uh 
rather busy schedule. How do you maintain balance? I think it's an ongoing project. Um, I think me and my co-founder talked about mental health and managing it really early on. Um, so we and we openly talk about it in the office as well. Um, I try and I, if I can do some exercise, it always makes me feel a little bit calmer and happier. Um, and I, I, yeah, my big like breakthrough was uh, two things. It was turning off my email notifications and also turning off my Shopify pings. So for anyone who's on Shopify, whenever you get a sale, it goes bing. And um, we are, bear in mind, we're a high value, like lower order density. So there, days, there have been days when there have been no sales and that's really bum out. And so I turned that off. And uh, that's been very good for my my well-being. I find founders' communities unbelievable. I think they are so generous with their time and their information. And um, any time I've had an issue, uh, I've found like individual founders or groups of founders just so helpful in solving it. Um, but I think uh, I think. It's really hard to, as a founder to manage your mental health objectively for two reasons. One is that you are way more than in any other job. People tell you what you're doing is bad all the time, right? Because you go for pitches and everyone that says no is saying to you, I don't think that what you're doing is not worth doing and it's not going to succeed. And if you did that in any other job to someone, you know, the amount of time that you get it in fundraising, that's hard as it is. And I think the second thing is that schizophrenia between when you're out pitching that like everything's going okay uh, and big vision, and then when you're in, trying to be like, okay, this hasn't worked, um, how do we fix it, and minutiae. And I think flipping between those twos is incredibly hard work. So I think that there's like that mental load anyway. But I think talking to people is always super helpful. Mm. Okay, so I want to go back to the start a little bit before we kind of start to draw to a close. Um, given you have a degree in modern history, what was your favorite period of history? <sighs> Oh, such a good question. I was such an eclectic. My finals basically covered every period and I didn't have a specialism. Um, but I did do my undergraduate thesis on Victorian attitudes towards opium consumption. Wow. Which was really, wow. really fun. Very interesting. Um, but I do love a good bit of late medieval history. There's all sorts of mad things going on then. Oh, so yeah, yeah. I think that time like it speaks to me. Interesting. Mm. I'm reading a book on the Ottoman Empire at the moment. Also great. So I, I loved non European nineteenth century history. Um like did China, which I knew nothing about in the nineteenth century and um love the Ottoman Empire. Um South America, super interesting. Yeah, I had um, a good one on the Aztecs the other day. Yeah. Fascinating. Massive fan Fascinating. of In Our Time, Melvin Bragg. So the best. It's the best. so good. It's like I, I listen to it uh, for education and I listen to it to make me go to sleep. Yeah. So I listen to it to make me go to sleep and then I rewind and listen to it for real it's when I wake so up. So can, dreamy. Yeah, it's I'm less bothered about <laughs> classical history. Like I think you need to get past the dark ages for me to be super excited. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, anything. Like Cecily and I are such nerds and... The great thing about having your own business is you can put what you like in your product copy. So if you dig on our website, you'll see all sorts of little historical anecdotes that we've just Very snuck good. in Very just good. because we could. And people are like, will it convert? And we're like, we don't care. Um, okay, I want to kind of draw to a close and I want to touch on two things before we finish up. Um, firstly, pretty obvious question. Like, what's next? 
for Motley? What does 2020 look like? So for us, uh, speaking like we have this amazing cohort of loyal customers, and when people see us and buy our jewelry, they love us. So now we just need to amp that up and spread the word. So spread the spread the Motley news. Um, so it's all about um, growth for us, like sustainable growth. We never would buy Instagram followers. We don't work with influencers that don't share our vision and identity. So we want to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Um, but yes, it's all about growth for us. So that then leads nicely into my final question, and that is... Um, what keeps you up at night and what gets you out of bed in the morning? So many things keep me up at night, which is why I listen to Melvin Braggs in our time. <laughs> um, I, yeah, whatever, whatever the worry of the day is. And the nicest thing, the way that I always manage it is like, how will I be feeling? About, will I be worrying about this in six months time? You know, we, we're a stock business. Um, one of our suppliers, who's a great supplier, um, the stuff was delayed. And every week they were like, it's delayed, it's delayed, it's delayed. And I, at the beginning, it would have like really got to my heart. But now I'm like, you know what? I've forgotten about it in a, f- in a few weeks' time. So I think that's that. I think the hardest thing about a business is always like all the people elements. Are you building the right values? Are you building the right culture? Um, one personal like weakness of mine I've realised is that we really really want to build a culture where you like fail and you learn and I've realized like I'm not so great on the failure like I still beat myself up about it so I want to work on that what gets me up in the morning um oh you know I'm such a revenue junkie like if we've had like a really good it's it's really bad I need to not tie my emotion to revenue but like if we've had a really good sales day I'll be like yeah let's go um and also I think one thing again that's quite hard about this I I'm you know I'm 31 so I've been working for nine or ten years and I got to a point in my career where I felt like I I knew I was like an expert in a bunch of stuff and to be thrown into a world where you know nothing is really scary so to get to that moment where you're like I've I've just cracked like I haven't solved the whole thing but I've like solved small thing and I know how to move forward that is another thing that gets me up in the morning plus coffee (laughs) That was amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. There you have it. The third episode of Your Basket is Empty. Go and check out Motley at motley-london.com. And yeah, thanks for your support. If you want to keep supporting the podcast, um, please go and leave a review or subscribe. You can check out some more stuff at the Instagram page at Your Basket Is Empty or the website yourbasketisempty.com. I'll see you next time.